The Holy Gospel according to John, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again at the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, O Christ. As the doors of the house were locked for fear, Jesus appeared among the disciples and said, Peace be with you. And, uh, you know, we we hear this, and part of what we hear is that the disciples were scared, and Jesus thought maybe they needed a word of peace. But I think there was a deeper context to this that maybe sometimes we don't hear. We remember a little bit earlier in the gospel when Jesus was preparing the disciples for what was going to happen. He was preparing them for his death. He was preparing them for the crucifixion. And he was imparting to them those things that he wanted for them to hold true, to hold sacred, to pass on, to teach to the the people they were going to teach. He was trying to give to them those last things that he wanted to be certain that they remembered. And he knew that one of the things that they needed in the midst of the difficult times ahead was peace. Not the peace that just comes from not fighting But that kind of whole peace that we have when we realize that that we are safe and we are whole, a wholeness that comes only from the presence of God. And so Jesus said to them that night, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. It's It's a peace that... I know I have spent a lot of time in my own life searching for. You know, it's a a peace that at times I feel like I may have a glimpse of, but it's a peace that I've never really been able to dwell in. And I I don't think that I'm alone in this. Because I think we spend a lot of our adult lives kind of searching for this peace, searching for this acceptance, searching for the wholeness that comes when we recognize that God is with us 
and that there is somebody in this world who knows us and even knowing us loves us. And it's an elusive kind of feeling. It's, a, it's something that I thought I might find in marriage. You know, I remember my parents as a, when I was a young child thinking, you know, mom and dad are in love and mom and dad do great and they never fight and they never do this and they never do that. And so obviously, you know, when I, when I find a relationship like mom and dad, everything is going to be fine. And, and then the 80s happened and mom and dad spent maybe an entire decade, it felt like fighting. And I'm like, I thought there was supposed to be peace. You know, marriage doesn't bring us peace. You know, because we have... That's maybe one of the first illusions of peace that's shattered in our lives, right? That marriage means harmony all the time. So I, I thought, like a lot of people do, well, you know, I'm going to get married and my marriage is going to be different because mom and dad are all right, but I'm a lot smarter than they are. And, and I'm, I'm also much more reasonable than my father is. So obviously, you know, my marriage is going to be better. And spoiler alert, it, it hasn't been, at least not in the way I expected. Um, you know, I, I remember a night when I was in seminary and we'd been married maybe two years or three years. And, uh, you know, I was sitting on the couch wondering if my wife was going to come home. Because, you know, some months when you're married, it's just kind of like, oh, we're going to fight this month. That's our activity. Okay, I guess that's what we're doing. And, and some months you know that everything's solid and sometimes you just don't know. And that peace that you long for, that relationship that you long for, that acceptance that you long for, you, you wonder, is, is this something I'll ever have again? Now, the good news is that she came home, and over, over 15 years, you know, I, I think on average we've had more peace than not, so we're doing all right. But it still isn't that, that wholeness all the time that, that I thought we were going to have. Now, I do find in, that, in, in my marriage that my wife loves me, warts and all, and even when sometimes I act like a jerk, which she has to because sometimes I'm really good at it. But still, that peace is elusive. And so when, when Jesus comes and, and says to the disciples, peace be with you, what he's saying to them is that wholeness, that acceptance, that being knownness, that you can find only in God and the relationship that God finds or provides be with you. And may you experience that. Jesus is wishing upon them that experience of the divine, that experience of relationship, that experience of community that we spend a whole lot of our lives looking for. Another, another part of this that, that really comes to me and, and stands out to me is Thomas. Thomas is somebody who I can understand. I, I kind of think of Thomas as one of the first kind of postmodern people. And also, it makes sense that Thomas is a twin. And Pastor Emily didn't correct me after the first service, so I must not have said anything that's completely uncharacteristic of twins. But, but you know, a twin is somebody who's always seems to be trying to establish their own identity because the rest of us, who whether they're identical or not, sometimes are trying to remember which is which. You know, they, they, they don't want to just be lumped in. It's not good enough that my brother and sister got this. I have to have my own, Right. So Thomas, the twin, comes in after the disciples have, have seen the risen Christ. After the disciples have received the Holy Spirit, that breath of life that was breathed into them, that Jesus shares with them. 
Thomas says, you know, I, I understand that y'all have received this, but I need to see it too. Because I feel like maybe, maybe he feels like he's missing out. Or maybe, I remember the first time I had a friend of mine go off to college. I was a junior in high school, and they'd, they'd always been two years ahead of me, but we'd been best friends forever. And he came back for break, didn't call me once, and we didn't live too far away. And all of a sudden, I realized that he had been in town, and he didn't call me, and my feelings were hurt, so I tracked him down, and he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm two years older than you, and you know, there's a big difference between being a junior in high school and, and being a, a freshman in college. You don't understand yet, but you will. As you might imagine, that was not terribly comforting to me. You know, as, as a college student, I began to kind of understand that because I'm in college now and I am so much mature than those people who I was one of two days ago, right? You know, as an adult, I can look back and I can, I can see that it's true that, that there is a, a maturing process that happens as you get out of high school, whether you go to college or not, that, that isn't present in high school. And I can see it as ages and stages, but... You know, is that junior in high school who just had his best friend tell him that, that I, I couldn't be his friend anymore because he was too mature for me? That hurt. You know, and I, I don't imagine that the resurrection is necessarily like going away to college. But one thing that we do know it is true is that Jesus was somehow fundamentally different than, than he was prior to the resurrection because Mary saw him and didn't recognize him in the garden, Right. And so there is some sort of difference. At, at the very least, there's, there's a difference maybe in how, how Jesus carries himself. And I think Thomas may have experienced this fear. Well, is Jesus going to come back and not have any time for me? Is, is this the way things are going to be? And so when Jesus appeared to Thomas, it was a, it was a sign to Thomas that he had not been abandoned. And that he was a part of this new world too. There's, there's another thing that I, I think is really important for us to clue into in this story. You know, Thomas said, unless I, I put my fingers in his hands and I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe he's been risen from the dead. And, and so in one sense, you know, Jesus coming back and saying, here, Thomas, put your hand in my hand, put your hand in my side. And do not be doubting, but believe. You know, it serves a couple purposes. One, theologically, it says that this wasn't just some sort of spiritual resurrection, that Jesus is really back, right? Physically, wholly, corporeally. You know, you can feel, taste, see, and touch him. And in 21, he eats, which is more proof that he's back in the body, right? But the other thing that it does is it tells us a really interesting truth about what the resurrection is. You know, I, I think if you're anything like me, one of your hopes for this resurrected life, one of the hopes that you have is that God is going to heal our wounds. At the very least, one of my most ardent prayers is God make this stop hurting because I'm, I'm kind of generally against pain to begin with. I'm really specifically against any pain that involves me and and not just like that, the pain that we get when we cut ourselves, but especially that emotional pain that comes from our brokenness. Right. That I think one of my most ardent prayers is, you know, I understand that, that I have to experience the consequences of my choices. But can we just skip to the part where it doesn't stink anymore and, and get to the part where I feel whole again? Never in my life has God answered that prayer. 
God has always made me live through the consequences. God has always made me bear those wounds. And in part, because I I think that God respects the process. And isn't it interesting when, when Jesus returns that Jesus bears the wounds of the cross? God doesn't even answer that prayer in Jesus. The wounds somehow persist. I, th- I think it says something about who God is. It, it says something about who we become in the resurrection. It says something about how, how God relates to us. You know, in some ways, I think the, the big deal really becomes that, you know, in, in Eastern religions, there's this sense that when we meet the divine, we're so overshadowed by the presence of God that we're sucked up into it. And we lose ourselves, and there's no longer me, there's only God, and there's this big, big sense of whatever you want to call it, nirvana or whatever. In Christianity, when we talk about what happens when God comes back and resurrects everybody and raises us up, it's not the sun-glad morning when this life is over, I fly away to some cloud where Jesus is. But what we hear in Revelation is that God creates the new heaven and the new earth here. God doesn't create the new heaven and the new earth and abandon what was, but God perfects and recreates and restores everything that was broken, everything that was lost, everything that was left behind is now picked back up. And we realize one of the fundamental truths of our faith that God loves what God creates and God is in the business of restoring that. And isn't that better news then God's going to just leave all this behind and make someplace new. All of a sudden, we see one of the truths about God, that God loves us in our woundedness. God loves us in our brokenness. God loves us through our pain and shame and fear and doubt and in all those places that we think if even God saw this, there's no way that God could love this and loves it. As God makes real the prayer that we pray every Sunday, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As God recreates and restores us. It's it's one of the fundamental truths of creation, of the kingdom of God, that even God bears the scars of relationship. And it's one of the fundamental truths of our faith that God takes those broken places that we think are dead, that we think could never sustain life again, and makes those places holy too. It's, uh, it's one of the things in, in my own faith that I, that, you know, it's one of the, I'm not an emotional guy, it's one of those things that when I think about, it, it makes me emotional too. Because I don't know about y'all, but there are a lot of places in my life, a lot of places in my heart that I'm just convinced nobody could love. So for me to hear that, that God loves those places too, you know, that for me is the gospel. That for me is the news that's worth me leaving those places that I lock myself in because I'm afraid and telling everybody about. And isn't that the truth that the world needs to hear so badly right now? That God loves us, even in those places where we're messed up beyond recognition and don't have any hope that could be healed. 
as, as we go out this morning into the world, into a world that really wants to believe the narrative of its own brokenness, that really wants to believe the story that it's bad, but it's just going to get worse, like we hear from all the politicians, you know, who really wants to believe that everything is just going to get scarier and scarier and worse and worse. We bear a story that has a different narrative And that story is that the love of God is stronger than our sin. The love of God is stronger than our brokenness. The love of God is stronger than the powers that separate us because the love of God is so strong that not even death can hold it back. How is it that we can go out into the world and bear this story and bear this narrative and tell this truth to a world that needs so desperately to hear it? Carry the cross, carry the empty tomb, carry the story that is so powerful and so joyful that you can't help but tell it and proclaim the new life that God is working in us and into the world to the people around you as you go into this Easter season. Amen.